Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, and we are streaming live from the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy Studio today. And I am super excited to have Dr. Michael Turner back on our podcast. This is at least the third time he's been on our podcast. And he is a functional medicine doctor, health and wellness doctor, probably many different titles we can call, we can call him. Um, but really what, what, what it amounts to is he believes in, you know, helping people get healthy and stay healthy. And he walks and walk, talks to talk. He's incredibly healthy himself. In fact, we were just talking about his most recent trip to, uh, Columbia. He just got back from Columbia. And, and one of the first things he was discussed with me is how nice the gym was that he stayed in. So uh, that was really, really cool. So uh, without further ado, uh, Dr. Turner, welcome back to our show. And you'll be discussing anti-aging. Thanks, Sean. Glad to be here. It's, it's always enjoyable. Love it. And uh, I got my Colombian hairdo here, you might notice. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. When you were telling me, uh, you know, a nice hotel down there with with a gym that all with all those amenities, it's like for forty bucks a night. It's like uh, I've been to gyms where you know the fee is thirty dollars for a one-time visit for a gym like that. So uh, quite the deal. Yeah, I know. What's not to love? I highly commend it. Great food, great, great uh, outdoor adventures. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. So tell us, um, you know, we hear about anti-aging, and I know we can't stop the aging process. So hopefully, you'll get into that definition also. But what are some of the most effective anti-aging strategies? Great point. Well, you know, it's it's striking, first of all, that we can actually do a lot towards aging. We can actually slow down aging to a degree. This is already well known. And so uh, it's important to give people some of that encouragement right off the bat, right? We tend to think, Absolutely. well, it's just inevitable. I'm going to get old, decrepit, etc. But whether it's hormones or micronutrients or sleep patterns or lowering stress or mindfulness, right, or lowering inflammation, there's a whole lot that can be done on a cellular level to reduce some of the fundamental drivers of aging, right, which tend to be, for example, inflammation, oxidative stress, uh, excess blood glucose, things like that, high insulin levels. And so if we get these things equilibrated, there's actually quite a lot that can be done to slow the aging process. But we're going to go through uh, some of these tips. I would say if we had to give it five categories, right, there's, uh, first of all, Diet, what you eat can affect the aging process hugely via some of the mechanisms I just mentioned. There are taking supplements. There are certain supplements that are anti-aging at a cellular level. For me, that's actually fascinating. That's where I've, you know, because a lot of people know, well, I should probably eat right. You know, I should probably exercise, yada, yada. But to understand, hey, there's supplements that you can get on Amazon for 12 bucks a month. Okay, that are known at the cellular level to powerfully slow down some major aging processes. That's exciting knowledge, right? So there's what you eat, there's supplements, there's getting great sleep. We'll talk about deep sleep, the importance of deep sleep. There's exercise, specifically uh, aerobic exercise. And, um, you know, that there's some other things. Those are the four main heavy hitters uh, we'll talk about. We have uh, some slides to go through, that kind of thing. Awesome. So what would be the first one? What would be the heavy hitter? Well, so the first one is let's talk about telomeres, actually. Let's talk about cells and cell division in telomeres. Are you familiar with that concept? I, I, I've heard about it. I know Dr. Bosworth, she has talked about it um, on our podcast before. She's big into, uh, um, she's written a couple books on the keto diet. And, um, you know, so she did talk to him about aging and telomeres a little bit. So, but educate us because I want to know some more. Well, sure. Lovely. If we can have your, your technical assistant get my slide up here, then I'll love to do that. We got some graphics and some things there. Okay, cool. Um, so I wanted to mention a couple things here. So true or false, the aging process in humans cannot be reversed, okay? <clears throat> Actually false, we can. There's, there's ways that this can be slowed down or even reversed. Sitting in a hot sauna is an anti-aging treatment. Turns out to be true. Mm-hmm. Interesting. For some reasons we'll mention. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trigger promotes aging. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> The health of your gut has a significant impact on aging. Yes. Yes, it does. Hugely, right? Got some head nods there. Yep. So we'll talk about that. We're going to understand the why behind all of this here. Um, but we're going to talk about cell lifespan and telomeres. As you mentioned, Sean, we'll jump in on that. We'll have a nice dialogue. We'll kind of kick over to topic two, which is the mitochondria. You guys are probably familiar with the idea of mitochondrial mm -hmm. health, energetics in the cell, biochemistry, all that. Hugely important. Uh, we'll talk about DNA repair, very important concept, right? Your cells are undergoing a significant amount of DNA damage every minute, right? 24-7. Um, just being alive, 
-hmm. the stress and strain, wear and tear, being alive, UV radiation, you know, chemical toxins, et cetera. There's a lot of reasons, um, but there's also ongoing DNA repair mechanisms at the same time. And if the, and you can support those, right? And, or conversely, if those are weak, if those are failing, your, your cells are actually accumulating mutations and you're aging. So we'll talk a little bit about DNA repair. We'll talk about sleep, inflammation, and exercise. Okay. But to get on to our first one here, um, telomeres, this is fascinating. Here's an example of a pair of chromosomes, right? And the telomeres are these little caps on the ends of the chromosomes, right? So those, those would be the yellow parts here, Sean. Okay. And the idea is that every time this cell divides, these, this chromosome has to be copied and then it gets torn apart. So it's actually, there's actually a physical tearing apart and separation of the DNA, right? You got this double helix, right? This thing gets torn apart, copied, and then the whole thing splits in two and you got two new cells. Well, that process is a little bit jarring. It's a little chaotic. It's a little violent even to use that word, okay? And the idea is that every time this thing is duplicated and tears apart, something's lost, okay? That process can't go on forever, Okay? And what's lost is the little base pairs at the end of your DNA, a.k.a. the yellow caps here, those shorten a little bit with every cell division. Okay? And those are called the telomeres. And once the cell divides enough, once those telomeres shorten down enough, they reach a critical limit, at which time the cell cannot divide any further. It officially sends a signal, I'm done. Okay? There's no more okay. reproductive capabilities within me. I'm officially done. And um, that's called the Hayflick limit, by the way. Uh, Hayflick was a scientist who discovered this. At, at the time, this was in the 60s, they thought that cells could divide on infinitely. But turns out, even under the best conditions, if you're in a lab with a Petri dish with perfect temperature, perfect pH, perfect blood glucose, and I paid a PhD, you know, 24 hours a day to sit around and take notes and babysit my cell, I can't get that cell to keep dividing and growing forever. It will stop after a certain time. And that limit is about 50 cell divisions, five zero. And that limit was uh, then named after this gentleman, and it's called the Hayflick limit. And he didn't know why, but he just observed that. It turns out the reason why is because telomeres shorten every time, and once they reach their critical threshold uh, of of length, it's a signal for the cell not to divide anymore. Interesting. Now, why does that matter to us? Why do we care? Because it turns out lifestyle factors can accelerate how quickly your telomeres are wearing down. And if this happens to be a cell, for example, in your brain, once it reaches that limit, it's done. It's not dividing and growing anymore. If, if there's any further need for a brain cell, it's offline. Okay. So how you live your life is the same thing as how quickly your telomere length is going to attenuate and diminish down until it reaches its critical limit. You could say it's like the ultimate aging cap limit, right? So that, that's, that's why we care. We're going to talk about a couple of those. Can cells live forever? No, they can't. Interesting. <clears throat> um, to touch on this briefly, there's an enzyme called telomerase. Have you heard of telomerase? I have, yeah. Okay. So this is a helpful thing in a sense. So telomerase is an enzyme that it goes around and it actually lengthens out your telomeres. So from that perspective, it's an anti-aging enzyme, right? So from that perspective, if we ask the question, is there anything we could do to stimulate our telomerase activity, that would be anti-aging. That would be phenomenal because that little thing's going around actually adding base pairs and lengthening our telomeres. Kind of interesting. Turns out cancer cells have mutations that promote telomerase activity. And so this is one reason cancer can keep growing very aggressively. And some cancer cells are, in fact, immortal. They don't obey that Hayflick limit because they've got mutations that promote vigorous amounts of telomerase activity. Right. That's a problem for cancer cells. But if we could get similar telomerase activity in normal cells, that would be fantastic. That's the idea. So telomerase is an enzyme that extends telomere length. And uh, stem cells, for example, have high levels of telomerase activity in them. Stem cells are, for example, found in bone marrow, right? So your bone marrow has to create white blood cells, red blood cells, platelets, and uh, we have these stem cells that are there pumping those out. And you can imagine you want those things around as long as possible, uh, you know, or less you cease to uh, have production of those certain blood cells. So stem cells have high levels of telomerase and cancer cells are immortal, in fact, due to mutations that pro -telomer promote telomerase activity. So our million dollar question is, is it possible to actually increase telomere length, right? And uh, there's a couple ways to do that. So we'll talk about this. I'll run through this slide and then we'll stop and talk about, you know, any one of these options that may be striking for you, all right? So here's something here, stress. We all know we're supposed to avoid it. Why is that? Because it turns out uh, cortisol, which is one of your main stress hormones, decreases telomerase activity, aka hastens shortening of the telomeres, okay? High cortisol levels chronically will do that. 
growth hormone is helpful. That actually promotes telomerase activity, therefore lengthening telomeres. Okay, we can talk about hormone replacement concepts a little bit if you want here too. Um, your antioxidant status, very important. The higher the antioxidant status, the more telomerase activity is promoted, the more the telomeres will be lengthened and protected. Vitamin D, very strong association here, promotes telomerase, promotes telomere, uh, telomere length. Omega-3 fatty acids, low-fat diet. Uh, Dr. Dean Ornish has published a lot about this as far as cardiology. And then here, there are a couple supplements here. So one's called Go-To Cola. This is interesting, Sean. I had never really heard of this. Um, as I started doing research uh, over the you know last year or so, really getting into anti-aging, turns out this little guy promotes telomerase activity. And uh, so does something else called uh, astragalus. So astragalus. Oh, I've heard of that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Astragalus, awesome uh, herb, awesome supplement for the reason that it, it's pro-telomere uh, Active telomerase activity and therefore pro uh, telomere length. So this is a great supplement. I take both of these, by the way, every day. Go to cola and astragalus. So there we have. Oh, there's one other one for us, which is hyperbaric oxygen. So there's a researcher named Shai Efrati out of Israel who's published a lot about hyperbaric oxygen, actually proving right. He'll put people in the chamber for 30 minutes, three times a week for a month, whatever. He's got a protocol, and then he's got a way to actually measure their telomere length. And actually showing that he can lengthen out people's telomeres based on the basis of hyperbaric oxygen. Pretty fascinating. Only downside is they probably charge a lot of money to do that. But right. um, there we have it. <laughs> so, yeah, anything on there? Grab your attention, Sean. Or this concept no, you no, but I know those two supplements you're talking about. I, the go-to cola, is that, the one you, yeah, is that how you uh -huh. say it? Okay, I'm not very familiar with that one. Um, uh, but I know the other one is available on Amazon and it's fairly inexpensive. So can you talk about, about how to... Um, get them and the expense of them? Yeah, sure. So here's an example. Um, here is a great brand you can get called Now, very reputable brand, one of my personal favorites, right off Amazon. Now is a fantastic company. They actually spend minimal to no money on marketing, as I understand. It's kind of like Starbucks. It's just all word of mouth and you know pride of uh, manufacturing and whatnot. So they are great. And go to Cola in laboratory tests shows an 8.8x increase in telomerase activity at this dose right here. So you can get this on on Amazon for probably 12 bucks and this bottle will last you a month. Awesome. That's my personal favorite. Yeah, pretty amazing. Yep. All right, should we move on to the next concept? Besides, Let's do it. Let's do it. Janet, do you have any questions for Dr. Turner while we're... I don't. I, I do have a kind of a little comment though because yeah. it, it does fall into my, my thinking process here that cultures that eat certain um, diets over history have developed longevity and and so that was yeah. kind of interesting when when i'm following this i'm thinking boy that that makes a lot of sense why we have certain groups that have you know lifespans that are longer than others so that's very interesting to me yeah right so yeah there was uh i believe a book in a a TV documentary even called Blue Zones. Have you heard of this? I, I have, yeah, yes. but go ahead. That's yeah, the, the Blue Zones are zones around the world where people have longevity and quality of life as well, like right. Okinawa in Japan, I think mm -hmm. Sardinia off of the coast of Italy, and there's a few other ones, and they're profiled in this book. And it, it's basically the search for what these people have in common, why are they living so long and healthfully, right? Pretty interesting. And uh, a lot of it touches on things that we saw on that list, you know, earlier, keeping your stress levels down and, you know, your vitamin yeah. D level up because you're getting sunlight decently and, you know, healthful diet and some things yeah. like that. It's pretty fascinating. Well, and one of those things with maybe, and maybe it's related to stress, um, they talk in, the, in that book, In the Blue Zones, they talk about how important community is. Yes. You know, and I think that's part of one of the ways you can lower your cortisol is have, you know, healthy healthy relationships around you. Absolutely. Sure. Versus toxic relationships <laughs> right. versus feeling isolated. Right. Which is right. Right. Bad. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's uh, love it. Let's talk about mitochondria, shall we? Okay. The powerhouse of the cell. The powerhouse right? of the cell. Shazam. <laughs> so um, mechanism of aging here is damage or loss of mitochondria. In fact, there's a whole thing called the mitochondrial theory of aging. You look that up on Wikipedia. It's all over the place. Right. Mm -hmm. Mitochondria are fascinating. It's almost like a cell within a cell. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so look at this thing. This looks like a whole cell on its own, right? But this thing is dropped in the middle of your cell. And in fact, a typical cell will have every, anywhere from several hundred to several thousand mitochondria within it. 
which number is variable, and we'll talk about that. Obviously, we want more mitochondrial density per cell as a helpful concept equals more energy output. But the mitochondria is almost like a cell within a cell, and in particular, it has its own little strand of DNA. It has its own DNA, and that comes exclusively from your mom. And this is one way that the DNA companies can trace the ancestry and such like that, because they know, yes, <laughs> they know that the mitochondria comes exclusively from the mom. And so that helps them with the statistics and whatnot, their algorithms, how they look at things. Pretty interesting. We're going to look at that a little bit more. But to your metaphor of the powerhouse of the cell, uh, my, my metaphor I like to use is a wood burning stove, for example, or a fireplace. This is the idea. And the idea is that your body needs a place where combustion happens and energy is created. And basically you have two sources of energy, carbs and fats. Okay. The other possibility would be proteins, but your body doesn't want to burn proteins unless you're literally starving to death because that's structural integrity of its own three-dimensional skeletal structure. Right? So your body instead is going to burn carbs or fats. What happens is biochemically, it doesn't matter what you eat. It gets stripped down to one of those three constituents. And then the carbs and fat molecules will get shuttled into the mitochondria. Same idea as if we're taking a log or something and tossing it into the wood burning stove. Okay. And so <clears throat> then we need, this is why we need oxygen. Okay. Let's just ask a simple question. Why do you need oxygen to stay alive? Why, if you fall under a river and you can't get your head above water, you know, for 30, 40 seconds, you're limp. And if that goes on for another minute, you're brain dead. Okay. Why is that? Because your brain has a tremendous energy need, constant. How is it getting that? Well, the mitochondria and all your cells of your brain are constantly putting out energy. They're, they're, there's chemical reactions to do that. How do they work? What is necessary to fuel those chemical reactions? Well, there's the fuel source, but then there's also oxygen. You have to have oxygen to combust, essentially, and to break down that molecule. If your mitochondria cease to have oxygen for even a brief period of time, they go offline. There's no more energy production. The cell goes offline. The group of cells go offline. The brain, the organ, whatever, goes offline. So the answer of why you need to breathe and why you need oxygen every second is because that oxygen's ultimate destination is to go through your bloodstream, diffuse into your cell, enter into the mitochondria, enter into the inner little membrane space within the mitochondria, and then start burning up carb or fat molecules to create energy. Pretty fascinating. It's basic combustion, just like you said. It's basically combustion, right. Right. Yep. Example, we, we minus the heat, but I guess you could put the heat in there because yeah, our bodies our have body heat, right? Yeah. <laughs> Correct. We got the heat, same thing. Yeah, yeah, we got heat, we got combustion, and we've got even soot, right? You've got like smoke and soot and the byproducts of that. That's CO2. <laughs> right, yeah. we got CO2 coming off, and then the, 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 the kind of soot and the little interior damage to the stove, unfortunately, that would be akin to the damage that goes on within the mitochondria. So they kind of take a hit, right? There's all this combustion going on down in there, but that th there's no free lunch. That's not a free lunch process. So there's actually some internal damage to the mitochondria in the face of all this internal flame and heat that's being created. And that's where antioxidants are so important. So as the oxygen molecule reacts and tears up the carb or fat molecule, it's also tearing up to a degree the structure itself of the mitochondria. And you get little spinoff by chemical byproducts called reactive oxygen species, if you've heard this word, right? And reactive oxygen species, this is a negative concept because these things are highly reactive yeah. and they're byproducts and then they go around tearing up the mitochondria itself. Hence, you want antioxidants. So antioxidants are chemical substances that actually react with the reactive oxygen species and kind of quench them is the idea. So biochemically, the antioxidant molecule will come and donate usually an electron, which is a hydrogen molecule with this an electron attached, and that will sort of calm down the chemical reactivity of some of these reactive oxygen species. So this is one of the main reasons why you need antioxidants to protect your mitochondria from too much internal damage in the face of what's going on there. So, And what are some antioxidants? Yeah. So, well, the classic ones would be like vitamin C, vitamin E. Those would be very classic ones. Um, more advanced level stuff would be like selenium, um, NAC, right. fish oil yeah. to a degree, acts like an antioxidant. Yeah, there are lots of them. But from a natural foods viewpoint, the basic concept that I learned back in nutrition, which I always like to share with people, is brightly colored fruits and vegetables. That's your key concept, brightly colored fruits and vegetables. That's your visual cue. The, the more uh, intense, let's say, the pigment is of the fruit or vegetable, the more it's antioxidant status. So you think of something purple like an eggplant, right? Or broccoli or blueberries or dark red strawberries, something like that, versus like, say, a potato. Okay. So brightly colored fruits and vegetables uh, are your litmus test, essentially, for antioxidant status of 
Which includes carrots, which are high in beta carotene, which are high in vitamin A. And that's also an antioxidant, correct? Yes. Yep. Perfect. You got it. So your mitochondria are down there burning the sugar or fat molecules and storing that energy as ATP, which is basically just a chemical currency of energy that can then be transported and shelved around the body. So in comes oxygen, in comes a carbon fat molecule, out goes CO2, out goes ATP, the storage form of energy, out goes heat. And then internally, there's some damage that occurs to the mitochondria, a.k.a. You know, the aging process of the mitochondria. And we try to attenuate that through what we're talking about. And this is the thing. Your mitochondria are kind of fragile. So as important as they are, they're unfortunately fragile. They have separate DNA, as I mentioned. And the problem is, in any given cell, you're typically having about 800 DNA lesions per hour. And uh, the mitochondrial DNA lack repair mechanisms. Okay? Your typical chromosomes, not only is there redundancy because you have one copy from mom and one copy from dad, but you also have a whole bunch of DNA repair mechanisms. In contrast, the mitochondria lack those. There's just one copy. It's actually not even in a double helix. It's in a ring. It's just one circular ring of DNA from mom, and there are no DNA repair mechanisms in there. And so it's much more vulnerable. Interesting. Very. Yes. Yeah. The other question or the other interesting fact here is that <clears throat> let's ask the question, how many mitochondria does a typical cell have? Let's say we did a calf muscle cell biopsy, Sean. Let's say we took a small little sliver of your calf muscle, stained that thing, put our microscope, cranked it up, right? And looked at and counted how many mitochondria are in there. How many mitochondria are we going to find? The answer is it depends on how active you've been in the last couple of weeks. Okay. Right. You've been out hiking with, with your lovely wife, getting ready for this or that mountain biking, right? your cell will actually remodel and the mitochondria are capable of splitting off themselves and creating, you know, little baby mitochondria essentially all by themselves. Right. So that, that, the whole, that whole process is called mitochondrial biogenesis. And that's fascinating. So you can stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis. You can stimulate every single one of your mitochondria to get the message and say, Hey, why don't you, you have a little baby mitochondria because this cell needs more energy output. Cause I'm hiking you know, mountains every day with this thing, or I'm doing, doing my spin bike class or whatever, and this, it'll start splitting and doubling the mitochondrial output. In contrast, if you've been in the recliner, you know, it's bad weather, you know, you're watching a lot of Netflix and whatever, your mitochondria are getting the point, right? And they're like, hmm, uh, we're not really doing anything down here. We don't need all these mitochondria around, you know, sucking up energy. This is a waste of time. We're going to just shut right. our down. And so <laughs> they start taking mitochondria offline. The mitochondria are literally broken down, recycled, Sean, and the mitochondrial count will drop. So it's variable. Interesting. And, I mean, when you think about that, I mean, it, it, it should be intuitive, but it's not that we all, we, we all make it that easy. But uh, that's the process of training. Yeah. That's, that's why we train so we can produce more mitochondria in our, in our cells so we can be stronger or we can be fitter. Um, and you got to think about this too, just, just intuitively thinking, I'm thinking, let's see if we have more mitochondria in our cells, it's the powerhouse of the cells. We talk about it, combustion, giving off CO2, also giving off heat, also giving off, um, water. Cause that's really the process of combustion. Um, you're going to have a higher metabolism, right? Yes. Yes, Sean. I mean, it makes just makes total sense. So, the more you exercise within reason, so you don't raise your cortisol too high and overdo it, and then um, you have the opposite of of uh, effect. Um, you know, you're going to increase your metabolism if you if you exercise more. That's a fantastic point. And just to kind of accentuate that, you know, let's talk about what does it mean to be in shape, right? Like we all know that feeling of, hey, I'm in shape because. I've been exercising this night. I feel good. I'm in shape, right? And I'm just talking about aerobic shape, right? And, you know, we can imagine, hey, that probably means that our heart is stronger. That's true, right? It probably means that our lungs can expand more and there's more efficiency and volume of our lungs. That's also true. But what a lot of people don't realize is this third part, right? What it means to be in shape actually has to do with your cells and actually means that there's a higher density of mitochondria and they're more efficient in putting out energy. There's a cellular remodeling aspect besides the heart and the lungs. It has to do with the mitochondria, as you said. That's the third part of being in shape. Super cool. Super cool. Super cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, we'll go quickly here. There's typically sometimes up to 2,000 per cell, and uh, that number can wow. change based on things like aerobic exercise, particularly interval training, very potent stimulus for mitochondrial biogenesis, as we said. And then thyroid hormones. Sean, this is going to be of interest to you, right? T3 promotes mitochondrial biogenesis and activity. This is the reason why 
too low a thyroid also lo- results in a low body temperature. Bingo. I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. T3 is a major regulator of mitochondrial numbers and output. Yeah. Yeah. Makes complete sense. Yep. And then we'll talk about factors that promote mitochondrial health, right? So our aerobic exercise, especially interval training, thyroid, just talk about that. Certain supplements. So I want to run through those. There are several core supplements that basically put your mitochondria in optimal state to create energy. With the biochemistry that goes on in there, the concept that I want to explain to people is it's kind of like the weakest link in a chain, right? If you've got a chemical reaction and you need all these little constituent molecules, if one of the levels of your molecules is low, then there's only so much output you can get from that whole circuit. Right. And so if we supplement, if we bring up the weakest levels of like two or three of these key molecules involved in the energy combustion process, the whole energy circuit rises and the output is tremendously higher. So one of these, one of my all time favorites is coenzyme Q10. Okay, you may have heard of that. To me, this is a fascinating, fascinating supplement. Um, And I learned about it first from cardiology. But the the quick punchline is you can take someone with heart failure. Okay. And the definition of heart failure, not that you've had a heart attack. That's not what heart failure is. Heart failure is just the muscle is just getting too weak to pump anymore. Could be because of a heart attack, could be because of genetics, could be because of a virus, could be because just getting old, could be because of a lot of reasons. But basically, the muscle is too weak to do its job. It is therefore failing and you have heart failure. Pretty, pretty bad situation. You're pretty much on the way out. There's not a lot that can be done when it gets bad enough. However, what's interesting is the cardiologists all know about CoQ10. Why is that? Because they found that they could give people coenzyme Q10 right? And their heart would actually start beating stronger. And their heart failure would improve, objectively speaking. And sometimes they would go off the transplant list or delay going on the transplant list, right? Or be able to go out of the hospital and function in in their community just on the basis of taking coenzyme Q10. To me, that's startling, right? You don't actually have to go in and do anything to the heart three-dimensionally, right? You don't have to give it a new valve. You don't have to you know, zap it with a pacemaker, right? Like all the fancy tech tech, they did none of that. They just dropped coenzyme Q10 in people's mouths, swallowed it. It went in their whole body. Part of it hit their heart and part of it increased their heart energetics so much that the heart actually beat stronger three-dimensionally and the heart failure improves. Pretty striking. It is. Yeah. So that coenzyme Q10 does that same thing. It cranks up energetic output of any part of your body, all cells, brain, heart, kidneys, skeletal muscle, doesn't matter. That's why I'm a big fan of that supplement. Anyways, uh, we'll move quickly through these other ones. But alpha lipoic acid, crucial for uh, mitochondrial health, magnesium, and then the last one would be acetyl-L-carnitine. So those are my heavy hitters for mitochondrial health. Patients come to me a lot of times and say, I have low energy, I'm fatigued, right? This is part of what we work through. When pa- patients come with chronic fatigue, we check certain hormone levels, we talk about sleep. But the, the, the third thing we talk about is there are certain supplements that you should be on. These are my four heavy hitters for chronic fatigue because they'll crank up the mitochondria and all of a sudden people have a bunch of energy out, but they never, don't know what to do with which is a great thing. <laughs> Last uh, thing I yeah. mentioned, interesting here, this promotes mitochondrial health, red light therapy, near infrared, right? So there's a whole field of um, photobiomodulation is the you know geeky phrase for this, but you can start to read about that, look that up, your audience would be interested in that, I'm sure. And basically the idea is that different wavelengths of light, which is just part of the electromagnetic spectrum, can have profound effects on our health. Quick example is, you go outside, UV rays are striking your skin. It can literally change the tone of your skin. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty notable. Um, UV rays can strike your skin and literally catalyze the synthesis of vitamin D. Right. So that, that's an obvious example. But similarly, other wavelengths of light have some profound health effects. And one of them is that the near infrared wavelength spectrum is healthy ends up promoting mitochondrial activity. So this is one of my other favorite home remedies for chronic fatigue. I tell people, find an infrared light box off of Amazon or go to a tanning salon. Sometimes there are whole infrared tanning beds that they'll get. Not This is not a regular tanning bed. This is infrared light tanning bed. It will not tan you, but you'll feel a lot more energized afterwards because it does some good things for your mitochondria. And the last part here, interesting, is a low-carb diet. So that actually also promotes mitochondrial health. So we actually have uh, somebody coming on our podcast to talk about red light therapy next month, I believe. Really? Okay. Yep. Yeah. Opportune. Very cool. Uh, low carb diet and then uh, intermittent fasting. That's also known to promote mitochondrial health. Sounding good? Yeah, it does. And what was I going to comment on about? Okay, you talked about and me being kind of an exercise geek. Yeah. Um, you talked about aerobic exercise um, helps to stimulate mitochondria. Um, division or increased mitochondria. Is that correct? Yes. 
Yeah. So what about anaerobic? I mean, me being a competitive mountain bike racer, I do anaerobic intervals sometimes, mostly VO2 max intervals, but sometimes anaerobic. Um, so does an anaerobic interval that's, you know, where you're way above, you know, where you're not burning oxygen anymore, does that not cre create more mitochondria in the cells? It also does, Sean. You're right. No, it also does. In fact, I don't, don't quote me on this, but my sense is that anaerobic activity versus just a pure aerobic condition actually creates a higher burst of intensity in terms of mitochondria. Because when you train your body to work under those low oxygen conditions, or the converse of that is to say a high CO2 condition, right? Your cells get the signal, my goodness, we need to, uh, we need to put on a whole lot more oxygen here because it's in, it's in short supply. Right. right. And so that's a powerful stimulus towards mitochondrial biogenesis. Yeah. So when I put aerobic exercise, I was meaning to differentiate that from like strength training or flexibility, for example. Okay. Okay. I, I'm sorry. I just had, I geek out on that stuff. And no, perfect. I'm glad you asked. Yeah. I'm yeah. not. I'm not trying to differentiate that from anaerobic. We'll put those kind of in one category, oxygen, right. CO2 modulating type activity. Yeah. And considering later on, you talked about interval training. I was figuring the interval is really your anaerobic actually in most Correct. interval training for a short period of time. Cause you can't be anaerobic for a long period of time. It's not no. possible. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Glad, glad we cleared that up. So, all right, what's next? What's next? All right. Let's talk about DNA repair. That's hugely important, right? So, this is an example. So you look at these these people here. This is unfortunate. So this this gentleman here, he looks prematurely old. Okay, I think this guy's like in his twenties, maybe 21, 22, wow. something like that. Yes, yep. Wow. But you know, he's got every uh, physiologic appearance and actual function of you know a seventy or eighty year old. Okay, and this is a syndrome called Werner W E R N E R Werner syndrome. It's premature aging. You can read about this, and. Let's ask the question, what, why do these people age prematurely, right? What, what has happened here? And the answer is they have mutations and failure of DNA repair. As I said, typical cell has 800 lesions or hits to its DNA per hour. If you cannot repair that, you do a little bit of math, and pretty soon that cell is just damaged. And when it's damaged to a certain point, it's offline. As I said, it shuts down, right? And then you have aging. One of the main, uh, there's a family of pro proteins called FOXO proteins, but in particular, FOXO3 is a protein crucially involved in DNA repair. And I'll, let, I'll leave that to your audience for some personal uh, further growth and, and reading and development, but hugely important concept, FOXO proteins. Um, this is involved in antioxidant protection of the cells. And <clears throat> interestingly, uh, also involved in recycling of dormant cells. This is a more important concept as we've been understanding over the last few years, right? So you can think about it from two angles. So one part of anti-aging and youthfulness is promoting cells to be optimally active. The other part is once a cell is dead or offline, we need to get rid of it, right? That cell that's dead or offline is called a senescent cell. And actually we're finding out it's at least as important and maybe even more important to be getting rid of old non-functional cells as to have new ones being created and to optimize them, right? Otherwise, you have these old non-functional cells sitting around, number one, taking up space, number two, taking up energy and just not doing anything. So example would be arthritis in the knee. You have chondrocytes that create cartilage in the knee, okay? But um, once that chondrocyte is no longer producing new cartilage, it's just taking up space. And uh, they've shown some benefit in what they would call uh, basically anti-senescent uh, supplements and, and even medications are being uh, developed that try to clear out these senescent cells. And they've shown benefit in models of osteoarthritis for that reason. Interesting. Yeah, very. FOXO also activates stem cells. All right. Let's ask the question then, how can we get more, getting more FOXO in your life, right? How can we increase the activity of this class of proteins, which does all helpful things I just mentioned? So here's one of them. This is not my personal fave. Uh, I, I actually despise this concept, but it is an anti-aging concept. So here, here goes nothing. Calorie restriction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> right? Like, oh, God, why does this have to be a fact, right? It's like, you know, all the anti-aging gurus, you know, like Dr. Sinclair and all these different people, they're always like, well, you know, our, our mouse models and all of our different models, you know, the chimpanzees, everybody, it just, it, it's amazing. You restrict the little animal's calories by 40% and you can like increase its lifespan, you know, by 30%. You know, it's like, I get it, but I like food too much. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> co 
caloric restriction will give you some more foxo in your life. You might be grumpy and thin, but you're going to live a little longer. So I'm trying to think about yeah. evolu- evolutionarily speaking. Right. Why would that be? I'm trying to just be rational about it. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, um, why would our body want to be in a caloric restriction if food is, you know, our main fuel source? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I'm just well, trying to, th- I don't know, I'm just, I'm pondering. Yeah, no, I like the concept. I'm thinking about it in a little different way. I'm just thinking about it again, like physics, like there's no free lunch and there's a, you know, a counter action for every action that's taken, right? right. Yeah. So this is the concept, right? So for the action of taking in food and burning it, there's a counter action of, damage internally to the mitochondria, right? You, you have to pump blood sugar around your body and then blood sugar is floating around and chemically reacting with your blood vessels, for example. Um, you are eliminating things through your GI tract that may be slightly toxic, slightly irritating. You're sloughing off cells from your colon. Your colon's kind of like wearing out over time, right? So there's, there's a whole bunch of sort of wear and tear on your body from taking in this piece of meat or this apple or whatever it is and taking it from point A to point B, completely breaking it down and putting it in all your cells for energy. That's not, there's no free lunch on that, right? So if you want to ramp up that process a whole lot, you know, if you want to be, if you imagine, you know, some bodybuilder or something eating 4,000 calories a day, that's also a very pro aging concept though, because there's, there's, there's no free lunch. There's a cost of assimilating all those calories. Yeah. That's how I think about it. Um, Getting more foxo in your life, intermittent fasting. So kind of a similar, in a similar vein, you know. Um, here's one of my favorites, EGCG. This is the reason why green tea is healthy. Ah. Yeah, EGCG, epigallocatechin gallate. Fascinating little word, fascinating molecule. This thing actually promotes foxo. So I take some ECGC every day. Um, awesome. So one, you can get a simple, um, and I'm going show you the supplement here in a second, but a simple little capsule of EGCG is like the equivalent of 25 cups of green tea which nobody's got time and energy to drink that, right? <laughs> so it's, great. <laughs> it's great. I feel like, you know, that healthy person over in Okinawa gre- drinking green tea every morning, it's like, I get a cheat, you know? I get a <laughs> I throw my EGCG in my trap, you know, every morning on the way to work and I'm good. <laughs> so uh, quercetin, also fantastic, yeah. right? Fantastic little supplement here. Um, typically found in onions and apples, boosts boxo activity equals more DNA repair. Love it. And here's an interesting one, heat stress, such as from using a sauna. So this answers the question why I told you sauna is an anti-aging concept, back to our uh, opening teaser quiz, right? Um, Rhonda Patrick, you can look her up. She's a PhD Mm -hmm. out of the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. You've probably heard of her. Very, very famous. She's all over the internet, all over podcasts. Awesome, you know, actionable science-based information. She's someone that I've been following for a while. She publishes a lot about heat stress, and she talks a lot about the benefits of sauna. And the, one of the main reasons is that it will boost voxel activity. Pretty cool. That is super cool. Yeah. Anything you want to talk about off this list? Or well, you know, one thing I think, I, you've probably heard the craze, and um, I'm always careful to catch on to the bandwagon really fast. But yeah. so what's the latest about all these, the latest about cold showers and ice baths? There's benefit to it. There's there's absolutely benefit to it. Um I don't, I don't know if there's strong anti-aging benefit to it, but there's certainly, I know, you know, alertness and reducing inflammation and, um, you know, promoting like vascular health, kind of the contrast of like a heat to a cold, that type of thing. I think it's good for the cardiovascular system. That's about as far as I I understand it. I think it's a little bit of a fad as well as a little bit of a faddish, maybe overemphasis to it lately, but in, in its concept, yeah, there's some good studies that have come out about both. I hope it doesn't come out as being positive because I hate cold showers and cold baths. <laughs> I'm with you, man. I can't. I, can't, I haven't been able to jump on that bandwagon either. No. It's like you know, we live in a first world country and we have hot water for a reason, and I'm proud to be able to use that. <laughs> exactly. God bless America. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm with you. I agree, man. I agree. <laughs> This is so much fun. Our time's running, so let, let's Yeah, go. yeah, keep going. Let's you're you're, doing, you're okay. doing great. You're doing great. Okay. We're doing good? All right, Sean. Perfect. Yep. Love it. Let's jump on this one. Let's talk about sleep. This is a heavy hitter, okay? Yeah. Mechanism of aging equals poor sleep. The more we study sleep, the more important we find out it is, okay? Um, everything from what's obvious, like fatigue the next day, feeling foggy, mentally not sharp, okay? That, that stuff, we kind of all know that. But things that are less obvious, like hormonal levels and cycling. So, for example, let's talk about testosterone. Guys who get a full night's of excellent sleep, like eight, nine hours, something like that, versus guys who get five hours or less, 
understanding that your testosterone peaks first thing in the morning around 8 or 9 a.m., you're going to imagine there's a difference. What's the difference? When they do those studies and just look at those groups, you know, uh, segregate them, check the morning levels, what's the difference? The difference is double, basically, 2x, wow. okay, 2x. Five hours or less sleep a night, you're getting half of the testosterone level output as a guy who's eight or nine hours, okay? And it's the same for other hormones. So there's a cycling that goes on. There's an internal replenishment, you can imagine. Physiologically, you have glands pumping out new hormone levels. And uh, this is something that, you know, needs time. This occurs during sleep and particularly the deepest stages of sleep. Well, and I, I tell people on our patients and our podcast listeners um, routinely, uh, we will die without sleep before we'll die without food. That's that, yes. that's just a fact. Absolutely. Um, you know, we have enough reserve in our bodies to live without food for three weeks. I mean, it might not be very fun, but we could live without food for three weeks. So not without water, but without food for three weeks. Right. And and with sleep, I've seen studies at three days. And th after three days, we start to go in psychosis. Yes, you're exactly you know? right. You start to hallucinate. Yep. You start to hallucinate, your mind starts to break down because your brain's breaking down and you will die. Yeah. 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 So what's next? All right. Um, so slow wave sleep is that deepest stage of sleep. This is important. And I'm really a fan lately of the sleep trackers, right? So the Fitbit and all these other kinds of sleep trackers, these are great because these actually will tell you how much deep sleep, aka how much slow wave sleep you're getting. This is an important concept. You know, it's kind of the idea of if you can measure it, you can improve it, right? So right. I'm, I'm real big on people actually measuring their slow-wave sleep. And it's, a, it's a real eye-opener for them. And then they start making some changes and they start feeling like a champ the next day and because they're getting this thing dialed in. So that's your key metric. How much slow-wave sleep are you getting? Interestingly, slow-wave sleep is well-known to correlate with dementia, particularly the Alzheimer's, right? So let's think about it uh, in terms of flushing out toxins from your brain. Right. So your brain is very metabolically active. There's certain byproducts and this whole thing needs to get flushed out. And that happens mainly during deep sleep. So you have what's called cerebrospinal fluid. It's circulating around your brain, up and down your spinal cord. And that's flowing and that's taking out some of these toxic uh, products that build up. And then that's then pushing them into your lymph system and getting them eliminated from your body. They've shown that um, Alzheimer's risk can be predicted on the basis of your sleep. So even before you get Alzheimer's, they can look at your sleep and say, oh, Sean, you're 55. Here's your sleep profile. Okay, this is really not good. You're going to accelerate risk of Alzheimer's within the next 5, 10 years compared to somebody else, right? They've done those studies. A lot of that was done at UC Berkeley, actually, over about the last 10 years or so. Pretty fascinating. So predictive model of sleep correlating with Alzheimer's. So deep sleep equals a clearance of waste products, such as an amyloid protein, which is uh, involved in Alzheimer's. Besides um, sleep, in terms of aging, we also have to talk about your immune system. So when you are getting great sleep, you are getting your immune system replenished. You're also getting growth hormone release. Okay. So these things are all uh, anti-aging concepts, just general health and wellness concepts here. So that's important to sleep. Well, and we shouldn't really be surprised. I, I just have to remind people, it's like, this is when we recover. We don't get stronger when we work out. We don't get stronger when we eat. We get stronger when we sleep. That's when our yes. body recovers. So if we're not sleeping, we're not going to get stronger. We're going to get weaker. Correct. Yep. Let's talk about inflammation. That's our next mechanism of aging here, right? Inflammation. We all have heard that word. We all know what it is in some sense. The best metaphor I like to use is like a splinter, right? Splinter stuck under your skin. It gets red, swollen, right? It's inflamed. You can imagine you don't want a lot of that happening internally to your body, right? If your kidney or liver or heart or lungs or vascular system is inflamed in any consistent way, that's a very negative concept you can imagine. Age, uh, inflammation promotes aging of cells or organs. Very involved in neurodegenerative disease. Right. So chronic inflammation of the brain, highly linked to development of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Highly relevant to the cardiovascular system, chronic inflammation of the heart, the blood vessels linked towards cardiovascular disease, a.k.a. heart attack strokes being the main cardiovascular diseases of interest. Notably, highly linked to cancer. Okay. Chronic inflammation of any given area, highly linked to cancer. We'll just use the example of cervical cancer, right? What's one of the main drivers of cervical cancer? HPV infection. Right. Which right. inflammation. Right. 
What's that HPV infection in doing? That's sitting there driving inflammation of your cells. It's an infection. It's this ongoing virus. It's just replicating, and your body is just constantly dealing with this little splinter, if you will, right within the cells. Is just driving this constant irritation, and that in- chronic inflammation therefore would drive a local cancer, such as a cervical cancer. Another example would be smoking and head and neck cancer, esophageal mouths. Same thing, right? You're you're literally smoking. I mean, talk about the. <laughs> like the ultimate, you know, form of just inflammation. Yeah. yeah and cellular right. damage. And then sure enough, whoop, out comes the cancer in that same exact area. Interesting. <clears throat> inflammation is known to be involved in joint pains too. So we're talking about arthritis, for example, right? Degenerative arthritis. There's known to be uh, inflammation as part of the creation and maintenance of that. So the opposite is also true. The anti-inflammatory diets and lifestyles are therefore anti-arthritic diets and lifestyles. Um, let's talk about reducing inflammation. One of the main ways is to heal your gut, so to speak, or get your gut in good health, right? And I'm sure you're familiar with this concept, Sean. A lot of people are within health and wellness, you know, the idea of like leaky gut or the benefit of probiotics or, you know, the whole idea of gut health and all that has gotten a lot of press and attention with good reason over the last, you know, 10 years, maybe 20 years. I remember actually there was a conference called Food as Medicine that I it was one of these national conferences with a couple big name speakers and I couldn't go, but my research director went and he gave me his binder. So it was cool. So I was as if I had gone, right? So he came back with like <laughs> all the printouts of all the important lectures of this food and medicine conference. I remember just devouring these things, looking through, like, Oh, this is amazing. Right. And I'm looking, looking at these national thought leaders and they were talking about exactly this stuff. Well, leaky gut, dysbiosis, probiotics, you know, malabsorption syndrome, all this stuff, what's going on. The short answer here is that, when you eat, you're taking something from outside your body, you're putting it inside your body, obviously, it's moving through this long tube, which is your digestive tract, and your body's interacting with that. And sometimes um, it doesn't interact with it in a healthy way. And you can imagine that parts of this, your intestinal tract can therefore become inflamed. Right. And the typical example would be a food allergy. If you're eating something unknowingly that's not agreeing with your intestines, it's going to swell and become inflamed. You're going to notice some certain discomfort. That's on the macro level. You just feel kind of queasy, gassy, bloated, et cetera. On the micro level, the cells are actually red, swollen and inflamed. And if that goes on constantly, that's going to drive destruction uh, and, and damage. But also it ends up driving systemic inflammation because what ends up happening is you break down the structure of your GI tract. So your GI tract has what we call tight junctions between the cells, and we want those to actually be fairly tight, right? So if this is, let's say, let's say three-dimensionally, this is your GI tract, okay? Uh, let me get this right, okay, right? And, you know, you've got food passing through here. You want to selectively let in what's helpful for you and keep out what is not, right? But if the structural integrity of this starts to break down and you get little holes in between the cells, the tight junctions start to break down, that's a problem which colloquially goes by the phrase leaky gut, and therefore food particles that are not meant to enter into the bloodstream will do so and they will trigger an immune response. This is how gluten acts, for example. So people who have gluten intolerance, the gluten triggers inflammation, it triggers an opening of those junctions and therefore other particles can follow behind it. And you have things now entering your bloodstream that are foreign to your body that aren't essential nutrients your body was not looking to absorb and your body starts to react to it. What's interesting, Sean, is there have actually been studies done about gluten that it breaks down the junctions in those between the cells. It promotes some leaky gut in everybody, regardless exactly. of your genetics, regardless yeah. of, you know, if you're officially C-like, it doesn't matter. When gluten hits the GI tract, it promotes some opening of and some basically increased permeability of the GI tract. So it's not a great concept overall. Yeah. Most people, they're going to, you know, they're going to handle it okay, but it's it's not doing anything helpful you know, let's put it that way at, at a microscopic level. There. So that's inflammation. Uh, one of the main ways to do it is to get your gut right. Uh, one of the other main ways to do it is with your diet. So here's a little infographic I looked up, do's and don'ts for taming inflammation with your diet, right? So we got anti-inflammatory foods on the left side. You can see we got some things like tea and vegetable oils and fish and ginger and fruits and vegetables. And then we have pro-inflammatory things here. The two heavy hitters for pro-inflammatory in a word would be sugar and saturated fat. Those are both very pro-inflammatory. Saturated fat being in animal products, right? So your full, your your high-fat dairy or high-fat meats. That's why those are listed over here, along with simple sugars, alcohol, some things like that. 
So that's inflammation. Anything you want to talk about there? Well, I, you know, I think it just goes to it goes to say that, you know, like like you said, all all of our nutrients, um, if we're not fed by intravenous fluids come in through our, our gut. So if we don't have a healthy gut, there's no way we're going to have a healthy body. I mean, that's yep. just, that just makes sense. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Let's talk about our next anti-aging secret weapon here, exercise. Um, this is perhaps overall the most potent of anything that I've mentioned because it hits aging from so many different viewpoints. If you had to just do one thing, if you only pick one thing off my list today, it would be to get a consistent exercise program in your life because it's going to do a whole bunch of good in a whole bunch of ways that we'll talk about here. But number one, you're going to end up with deeper sleep. Okay. This is well known. If you exercise during a day, you sleep better at night. Yep. It's going to result in less inflammation in your body. Assuming you're not doing extreme over aggressive exercise, right? We Like setting that aside. If you're doing, you know, if you're walking 20 minutes with the wife, let's just say at night, something like that, doing a little lap swimming, a little stretching, something like that, you're overall going to be having a lower level of inflammation uh, than you would otherwise in your body. Yeah. If you're running a triathlon, an Ironman triathlon a week or probably even once a month, probably not good. No, no, no. Too much, too much inflammation, <laughs> too much stress. Yep. Yep. Um, Promoting bones and muscle uh, strength and development, obviously. Growth hormone release. Yep. This is fascinating for me. There have been studies done, and you talked about anaerobic activity, right? We've talked about anaerobic, strong stimulus for mitochondrial biogenesis and function. Anaerobic activity, strong stimulus for growth hormone release as well, Sean. So I was fascinated when I first read these studies. They've done studies. They literally will have people sprint, go all out for just 30 seconds, and then they'll take blood levels and you get a growth hormone release that's demonstrable for like an hour, an hour and a half after one 30 second sprint. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Which just yeah. tells you that, you know, we don't need a lot of exercise to get benefits from it. Something is better than nothing. Absolutely. So sprint for 30 seconds. Correct. There was a few years ago, I had a, my personal exercise challenge for the year was to run a six minute mile. This, I was about 38, 39, so my dad's time. And I had not been a high school runner. I had not never done cross country. I was not, you know, a recreational triathlete, a road runner, none of that. So this, this was going to be quite a challenge for me. Like, golly, I'm 38 years old. I'm like 210 pounds. I, uh, you know, I've had back pain off and on in my life and I'm going to try to run a six minute mile. Oh God, yeah. here goes nothing, you know, but anyway, <laughs> I'm such an overachiever. I'm so just, de you know, <laughs> determined about things. I'm like, I'm not going to let go of this goal. I said I was going to do it this year. I got to do it, right? So anyway, the year's coming to a close. I got to run my six-minute mile. Here's the thing, Sean. I got to go to work, right? You know, I mean, I'm working hard. I don't, I don't have time to, you know, get to the track and all this stuff. So how am I going to train for this? Here's the thing. You know how I train for the six-minute mile, Sean? I never, went, I never went to the track one time until it was test day. What did I do? Sprints. I, I, 20-second sprints. I sprinted in place because again, constraints and time and all that. I sprinted right. in place in my, in my walking closet. Okay. Sprinting in place, 20 seconds on 10 seconds rest. Okay. Typical hit cycle, typical Tabata, T-A-B-A-T-A -A -A for all yep. you guys out there. Right. I did Tabata hit cycles, sprinting in place. When that got too easy, I put hand weights on. When that got too easy, I held my breath. <laughs> And uh, let me tell you, if you've got 10 pound hand weights in and you're holding your breath and you're sprinting it like there's no tomorrow and there's a hungry, you know, saber tooth tiger coming after your backside, you will get in shape. And so yeah. I, it only took me about 10 minutes a day of doing that. I showed up at the track for test day. I ran my six minute mile. This was like two months of training, three months of training, something like that. That's it. Never went to the track, sprinted in place with hand weights, with holding breath. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised. I've heard... Um, Athletes that do that, uh, by, uh, cycling athletes that do that, and they end up riding a 100-mile bike ride, um, and the only training they did was interval train like that for, for 20, 30 minutes at a time on, on the indoor trainer, mm -hmm. you know, and they, and they finished a 100-mile bike ride. So lots of benefits from, from sprinting, for sure. Yeah, yep. It's interesting. So in the original Tabata study, which is the last name of a guy, a Japanese researcher, by the way, you can look this up. He popularized, it was revolutionary. It was really groundbreaking, right? Because he was working with Olympic athletes in Japan, as I recall, and, and these were cyclists. And so the concept was what would be the minimal effective 
duration of exercise to get the same benefit, right? So if we, instead of having our guys cycle for 45 minutes at X intensity, could we have them cycle for 20 minutes at, you know, a higher intensity? Could we have them cycle for 10 minutes at higher intensity than that? And he just kept pushing the math and the logic and he got it all the way down to 20 seconds on 10 seconds off pretty much max effort. So that's 30 seconds of work, right? Times eight rounds. Okay. So 30 seconds times eight. So that's four minutes. And he demonstrated in those four minutes, he was getting equivalent results from, I think, 30 or 40 minutes or something of a more low intensity traditional. And, but here's the thing, here's what was a kicker to your point of the hundred mile bike ride. That's anaerobic activity. Okay. And they did, I think they did calf muscle biopsies and looked at mitochondria. They obviously tested VO2 max and all that stuff. So you would, you would anticipate, you would predict, okay, they're sprinting. They're going to obviously have a higher anaerobic capacity when they're done. So yeah, the sprint, the Tabata group compared to the typical low intensity group, we're going to expect them to have a higher VO2 max and higher sprint capability. Yes, they did. That was obvious. That wasn't groundbreaking. What was groundbreaking was that their just normal aerobic capacity also increased greater than the other group. And I think the mitochondria by density is something, something like that on their calf muscles as well. But the point was it actually improved both anaerobic and aerobic output greater than the other group. So even though the other group was had a stated goal of improving aerobic capacity, the best way to prove aerobic capacity was this sprinting regimen that he put them on. That was the groundbreaking part. In some ways, when we talk about the science of the mitochondria, we shouldn't be surprised, mm-hmm. you know, because if, you know, the whole, whether it be aerobic or anaerobic effects um, that you're looking for, it, when you, you know, essentially, you know, increase the output or increase the number of mitochondria in your cells, you're going to get benefit from anaerobic, anaerobic exercise. There's just no doubt about it. Correct. You know, so that's the reason it works. Now, I will say this it really throws a wrench into a lot of coaching strategies when it comes to endurance athletes. And honestly, Dr. Turner, I wish it was that simple, but I don't think it is quite that simple because here's one of the things too. Even if you do have that that aerobic capacity because you generated it because of the increase in the anaerobic intervals you were doing, so you Mm -hmm. increase your anaerobic interval, if you're not used to being on a bike for five hours mm. and you've never actually practiced that, um, you get a mental breakdown when you get a couple hours into the ride. And it's like, holy smokes, I got three more hours of this. So it's not just physically, it's a mental thing. And if you talk to people that have done Ironman triathlons, I've got a buddy that's finished 15 of them and he's never DNF'd. Mm. It's all it's all mental. Uh. Um you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's not just, it's not just physical. I think especially right. as the duration increases, it's really, really a mental piece. And think about why we call them endurance sports to endure. You're enduring something you have to. So that's why they call them endurance sports. So um, physiologic, physiologically, it makes a lot of sense, but I think mentally endurance sports, um, you do need some of that. Um, and possibly if you were running more than a mile, you know, if you were running a marathon, yeah. It would have been, you know, I doubt the sprints that you were doing would have worked for a marathon. Because if you think about people that hit the wall at like 13 miles mm-hmm. and stuff, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if the sprints would have helped that. I really don't know. I'm just I'm just kind of guessing. I don't know. I would love your thoughts. Good point, Sean. And I, I like what you're saying. I think you're right. And I'll also add, I'll take you one further on that and say part of it is physical still, right? In the sense that what we've talked about is to say that the cells and the mitochondria can get ready with an amazing aerobic output. That's all good. But you know what? When you're running a marathon or you're doing your triathlon or you're cycling 100 miles, you also have to remodel ligaments, right? Bones. You have to remodel three-dimensional structure of your body to get ready to endure those weight-bearing forces for X period of time. Right, right. right? And that only happens with X period of time, right? So you can get the cells and the mitochondria density ready to go off more energy than you know what to do with, but your three-dimensional skeletal structure isn't ready to deal with whatever it is for three hours until you're actually out there for three hours. So Good point. That's a really good point. That's why I asked you. I knew you'd know. (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah, right. That's a good point. Right. So it kind of saved my bacon. I had a one-mile goal because, you know. Right, right. (laughs) My my knee or something would have started getting twinsy, I'm sure, by mile 10, you know, because I just wasn't ready for that. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So back to anti-aging. What anti-aging uh, what exercise weapon? Yeah, growth hormone release. Love it. Sprint it. Get it. Um, next up, heart and lung health. Right. So here goes exercise promoting heart and lung health. Obviously, here's one of my big faves: brain health. 
Okay. To exercise is to have a healthy brain. Those are both connected. In fact, I talked about this on some other podcasts that I've done, but this is fascinating to me, Sean. They've done studies. If you exercise, you are immediately smarter in the post-exercise period for several hours. Immediately. They've done basically IQ tests. Wow. They've done tests where they'll give you random faces and names to two different groups of people. And then they do. Then one group goes and sits in a lazy boy and reads a magazine for 20 minutes. The other group goes on a stationary bike. They call them back in. They post-test them. What's their recall? The people who exercise have a higher recall. This is demonstrable. They've done it's many studies like that. It's fascinating. It's based on brain flow, essentially, or rather blood flow, essentially, to the it brain. It makes sense. So, mm-hmm. Yep, yep. You're throwing the you're throwing the dimmer switch up to full circulation yeah. of blood, and your brain's gonna you know thank you for it. Be more it's, it's one of the reasons we don't exercise right before we go to sleep because our body needs to decompress. It needs to sure. you know um, our, including our brain. Yeah. The other thing that exercise is known to do for the brain is to pr- promote levels of something called BDNF, brain derived neurotrophic factor. And this is a fascinating molecule basically in in colloquial language i would call this miracle grow for the brain okay when brain bdnf levels are high this promotes health of neurons and it promotes strength of neuronal connections and we know that exercise boosts bdnf levels in the post-exercise period so very healthy in that way and then of course exercise is helping for mental health stress relief right so all of these things are anti-aging concepts or on the flip side, you know, pro health and wellness, uh, preventative medicine concepts here. So, wow, that was a lot to take in. Thank you so much, Dr. Turner. Um, and, and I apologize for going over. We try to limit it to an hour, but I I had lots of questions about this subject. So, um, (laughs) and I, and I think our listeners and viewers will really appreciate it because, um, there's just a lot in depth, uh, when it comes to anti-aging and I appreciate you sharing all your knowledge and wisdom because it's, it's definitely, um, um, you, you've got, you have a vast wealth of knowledge for sure. That's why I love talking to you. Oh, thank you, Sean. That's kind. That's kind. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of my favorite aspects of this presentation is that it is applicable to everyone. Right. So let, let me just ask a question, right? It's kind of a you know tongue in cheek question, right? It's like, is, is anti-aging medicine for you? Are you interested in anti-aging? It's like, well, let me ask you two questions. Are you a human being? And are you getting older? (laughs) (laughs) If the answer to those questions is yes, then you need to be interested in anti-aging concepts. Well, and one of the things is, and and, you know, we we see it in our daily lives all the time, but you see somebody that has probably aged prematurely, maybe because they haven't taken care of their body right and stuff. Um, And I, and I, I got into a debate with somebody on Facebook uh, about a year ago Mm -hmm. and um, he was a 27 year old um, male. And he, he said he didn't really care about, you know, he wanted to live life. He wasn't worried about, you know, eating right and treating his body right. And my guess is in 20 years, if he's alive and I, and I, I hope he is, um, my guess is he'll change his tune. Um, you know, so really, I guess what I'm saying is that it's never too early to start to start some of these concepts of anti-aging, you know, and because it, it's going to help you 20, 30 years from now, correct? Yes, Sean, absolutely. To put a little punchline on that, from the world of cardiovascular medicine, we know the concept of hardening of the arteries, a.k.a. atherosclerosis, right, a.k.a. calcium and plaque and cholesterol buildup in the arteries, very negative concept, risk factor for heart attacks and strokes, right? Risk factor for dementia, all that. Let's ask the question, based on autopsy data, when does atherosclerosis begin? The answer is your late 20s. Wow. Yep, your late 20s. So at that point, if, as of your late 20s, there's no more free pass, okay? Every piece of McDonald's, every piece of bacon grease, yeah. every, you know, vanilla milkshake, every little slurpy sugar bomb that you're dropping in your body, at that point, there's no free pass as far as your cardiovascular system. Atherosclerosis is officially in play. Yeah. yeah. And, but let's also talk about on the flip side. Yeah. It's never too late, correct? No, it's never too late. And in fact, there are things you can do to reverse atherosclerosis. Right. To me, that's a fascinating concept. Maybe we can talk about that at another point in time. But yeah, yes. you can take people and reverse that hardening of the arteries process, not just slow it, reverse it. That's been proven now for a while. Fascinating. I love it. I love Let it. Let me hit you guys and your listeners with a summary real quick because I always like Please. to wrap things up. Yeah, a couple bullet points to organize our thoughts. So, Anti-aging concepts, are you a human being? Are you getting older? 
the answer is yes, then you need to, you know, you're probably interested. And so we talked about long telomeres. That's helpful. Those are those caps on the ends of your cells. Your cells will keep dividing until the telomere length runs out. As long as there's a cap on the end of that DNA, your cell has a signal it's okay to go ahead and grow and divide. So you want to maintain long telomeres. There's ways to do that that we discussed. Number two, healthy mitochondria, hugely helpful. It doesn't matter what organ we're talking about. It could be your heart. It could be your brain. It doesn't matter. To do its job, that organ needs an adequate amount of energy. The only place it's getting that energy is the health and function of its mitochondria. Therefore, to have healthy mitochondria is the same thing as to have a healthy organ output. Famous example that I used, heart failure. You give people coenzyme Q10. It's one of the weakest links in the chain of bioenergetics in the mitochondria. Lifts up the mitochondria energy output. The whole heart three-dimensionally starts beating stronger. Fascinating. Wow. Yep. Foxo activity and DNA repair. Every cell, about 800 DNA lesions per hour. If you have a mutation that would inhibit your ability to DNA repair, you have premature aging as an example of the pictures that we showed. Alternatively, if you can promote DNA repair mechanisms such as the Foxo family of proteins through some things that were mentioned earlier, including a couple supplements like EGCG and quercetin, this promotes DNA repair. That is a huge concept very important anti-aging and particularly anti-cancer concept, right? Because one of the, every cancer has as its basis mutations. It's basically a, a normal okay. cell that's become mutated and it's gone rogue. Okay. Number three, deep sleep, hugely helpful anti-aging concept. Or that was number four, rather. Next, reducing inflammation. We talked about healing your gut and also concepts of an anti-inflammatory diet. And then uh, exercise. If you want some further resources? We talked about Found My Fitness, which is the website of Dr. Rhonda Patrick. She's a PhD out of the Bay Area. Dr. David Sinclair, probably the premier anti-aging guy. You probably heard of him. He's at Harvard Medical School. He talks a lot about FOXO as well as NAD and then another family of proteins um, called sirtuins. We talked about mitochondrial theory of aging. Then we talked about cellular senescence. This is the idea that those old cells that have stopped dividing, they need to be culled, essentially. They need to be recycled. They need to be taken offline. Otherwise, they're just sitting there, and that's a pro-aging concept. So there we have it. I love it. Great summary. Dr. Yeah. Turner, as always, I appreciate you being on the podcast. So if anybody has any questions for you, how do they get a hold of you? Well, thank you. Uh, MichaelTurnerMD.com would be the simplest way. Uh, all one word, all lowercase. You can contact me or my staff directly. We'll look forward to talking with you. I love it. I've shared your website a lot. So thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. And Dr. Turner, as always, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you listeners and viewers for tuning in today. Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Monday when we will be back at it at 1230 to 1.30 Pacific Standard Time. Follow me on my Facebook. Oh, that's right. You can't follow me on Facebook right now because we are restricted from going live. So Twitter, LinkedIn, or YouTube. Go to the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy or Sean Needham at those sites and follow us live. Thank you so much for listening and viewing today.